People of the Internet, tonight we are debating capitalism of Ayn Rand, and we are starting right now with the opening statement from Dr. Norton. Dr. Norton, the floor is all yours. Thanks, guys. I'm Dan Norton. I have a PhD in philosophy, and I advocate Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism. You can find my work on my YouTube channel, which is linked in the description. I want to thank Modern Day Debate for hosting this event and thank Ben for agreeing to debate and the audience for being here and participating. In my opening statement, which I'm told I have up to 12 minutes for, I'm going to be laying out Ayn Rand's defense of capitalism as I understand it. Let me start by asking you to imagine that you are stranded alone on an island. Perhaps you were shipwrecked. In any case, once on the island, you now have a choice. You can choose to try to survive, or you can just give up and let yourself die. You can starve to death. Let's suppose you choose to try to survive. How will you do it? Well, perhaps most obviously, you need to get food. But how will you do that? You can't just wish food into existence. Praying doesn't work. You need to do things like search for edible plants or catch fish. But which plants are poisonous and which are edible? How can one catch fish? We aren't born with the knowledge of how to survive. We need to discover that knowledge and then act accordingly. To discover the knowledge we need to survive, we need to think. We need to use our rational capacity and engage with the world. If we do so, we might discover which plants are edible, how to catch fish, how to build a shelter, how to build a fire, which plants have medicinal value, and so on. If we stop thinking, if we stop using our rational minds, we lose our ability to survive or to improve our lives. Now let's say another person washes up on the island. Is that good for you or bad? Well, it depends on what kind of person it is. If it's another person who uses reason to discover knowledge and help himself survive, then he could be good for you. Maybe he can discover and teach you survival skills that you didn't have. And maybe you can also teach him things. By working together, sharing your knowledge and trading, you can both survive better than either of you could alone. On the other hand, suppose a different sort of person washes ashore. Suppose it's a lazy bum who doesn't ever want to put forth the effort of thinking and producing values. He just wants to live on you as a parasite. He happened to have a gun on him when he arrived, let's suppose. And he uses that gun to make you his slave. He just points his gun at you and orders you around. In this case, the person who came ashore is bad for you. He's just a drain on your resources. You would be better off alone. It's the threat of physical force, the gun, that allows him to make your survival worse, if not impossible. Thus, it's in your interest to have others on the island only if they agree not to use or threaten physical force against you. 
force negates the value of reason. It's pointless to reason if doing so does not allow you to reap some kind of reward. But force doesn't just make reasoning pointless. It also makes reasoning impossible. If someone points a gun at you and demands that you believe two plus two is five, or that the earth doesn't move and the sun goes around it, you cannot make yourself believe that if you have seen no evidence supporting it, or if you have seen evidence contradicting it. You can mouth the words, but that's not the same as believing it. As Ayn Rand says, a gun is not an argument, unquote. What would have become of the scientific and industrial revolutions if men such as Galileo tried to think in compliance with the dogmas of religion rather than following their own independent judgment? Their thinking would have been stifled. Those revolutions would not have happened and we would not enjoy the modern technological civilization that we enjoy today. Now, returning to the island example, I said that a person who subjects you to force on the island would be bad for you. But that evaluation assumes a certain standard of evaluation, in particular, an egoistic standard, according to which something is good for you if, and only if, it helps you achieve your survival. If, however, egoism is bad, if self-sacrifice is the moral ideal, as it is for many people, then a life as a slave might actually be good for you. On a morality of self-sacrifice, what grounds do you have to object when others wield force against you? Insisting that you have the right to live your own life as you see fit would betray an egoistic and selfish attitude, which is the opposite of self-sacrifice. If self-sacrifice is good, it's better to submit to coercion Thus, an ethics of self-sacrifice is in conflict with a politics of freedom. Freedom enables one to achieve one's survival by using one's mind to one's own benefit. But if one shouldn't pursue one's own benefit, if one should be selfless, there are no grounds for, for insisting on freedom. Instead, one should give it up. Being free is in one's self-interest. Being a slave is not. In Ayn Rand's view, only an ethics of egoism can ground the politics of freedom. Only if it is right for an individual to pursue his own interest, does it make sense to banish force from human relationships. And that's what capitalism does. It allows people to interact with each other only on a voluntary basis. Initiating physical force against others is prohibited. Force can only be used in retaliation, that is, in self-defense. The role of the government in a capitalist system is, and only is, to protect people from force. Thus, the government has a police force to protect people from domestic criminals, a military to protect people from foreign threats, and a court system to settle disputes peacefully. But that's about it. The government does not itself act like a criminal and coerce its own citizens. This means that under capitalism, there are no taxes. Taxation is a form of coercion. 
If you do, do not give some of your money to the government, you will eventually be hauled off to jail by people with guns. Programs that are funded by taxation, such as Social Security, Medicare, welfare, and public education, all depend on coercion and do not exist in a capitalist system. Nor would there be any regulations. And by regulations here, I mean laws that interfere with voluntary actions. For instance, minimum wage laws that force employers to pay at least a certain amount, even though employees might voluntarily agree to a lesser amount. Or laws that prohibit you from taking a drug that lacks FDA approval, even though you might want to take it. The vast array of regulatory bodies that now exists, the FDA, SEC, OSHA, EPA, etc., would not exist under capitalism. A world without taxes and regulations is obviously a far cry from what we have today. So blaming today's problems on capitalism, as is so often done by socialists and others, is to attack a straw man. What we have today in America, and have had for many decades, is a mixed economy, not capitalism. That is, we have a mixture of freedom and coercion. And it's the coercive element, not the free element, that causes problems. Freedom is good. Coercion is bad. No country has ever been entirely free of coercion. But perhaps the US in the late 19th century came the closest. And this was a period of explosive growth for the country in which millions of people immigrated here for a better life. Freedom and progress go together. This is not an accident. When men are left free to think and act on their own independent judgment, they can discover new knowledge and build new technology that pushes mankind forward and raises everyone's standard of living. When thought is stifled through government control of speech, when production and trade are stifled by taxes and regulations, progress slows and mankind stagnates or even retrogresses. To conclude, Ayn Rand's defense of capitalism in a nutshell is that capitalism is the, is the system consistent with the requirements of man's survival. Man survives by reason, but force, to the degree it is used, makes reasoning pointless and impossible. It negates and paralyzes the mind. So if survival is the proper goal, which it is, according to Rand, the proper social system is one that abolishes force and leaves man free to think and reap the rewards. Capitalism is that system. It is the system of freedom and of reason. And it is the only moral system if man's life on earth is the proper standard of morality, which according to Ayn Rand, it is. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Norton, for your opening statement. And I'm going to go ahead and kick it over to Dr. Burgess for your opening statement. All right. Thank you, Kez. Thank you, Dan. Uh, I do want to start out by just uh, dispensing with a very typical but very unhelpful libertarian straw man, which is the idea that debates about capitalism, and socialism, and taxation, and redistribution, and property rights have anything whatsoever to do with attitudes towards coercion. They don't. It's a red herring. 
uh, all systems of property are coercive by definition. Property just is a claim to a right to exclude other people from the use of some, uh, some resource. All distributions of property are backed by threats of coercion, unless you redefine the word coercion in a silly way to mean like unjustified coercion, in which case you're just begging the question. Uh, so a no trespassing sign is every bit as much a threat of coercion as a overdue notice from the IRS. What we're arguing about, when we argue about capitalism, socialism, and equality, and property rights, is not coercion, good or bad. It's certainly not reasoning, good or bad. It's is do we? Uh, it's which system of property should be coercively enforced, right? Which distribution of scarce resources should be coercively enforced? Now, uh, just to very briefly lay my own cards on the table. I agree with uh, the great socialist analytic philosopher G.A. Cohen uh, in accepting a fairly radical version of the principle of equality of opportunity, whereby social systems that tend to produce inequalities that uh, are linked to factors outside of your control, whether that's skin color or gender, or whether you were born into a rich family or a poor one, or whether you happen to have certain skills that are you know, prioritized uh, by the kind of society uh, that you uh, that you live in innately, uh, are to that extent unjust. Not the only thing that can make inequalities unjust, but it's certainly a thing. So I think that the system we should coercively enforce is a much more equal distribution than Dan does or that Ayn Rand did. But uh, as much as I would be very happy to get into what I think a more just and equal system would look like in the open back and forth or in the Q&A, that's not the main subject that we're here to talk about tonight. The main subject that we're here to talk about tonight is not socialism, but capitalism, and specifically Ayn Rand's defense of capitalism. And I think to, to really understand that defense, uh, you need to get into Ayn Rand's values. Uh, because it is really important, you know, Dan, to his credit, was very frank about this in his opening, to recognize that when Rand defends capitalism, uh, she's, not, she's not defending the halfway civilized kind of modern capitalism under which we have a social safety net to guarantee that people don't just starve in the streets if they fall through the cracks of the system, under which we have civil rights laws to stop restaurant owners in Alabama from hanging whites-only signs uh, in their windows, under which we have uh, Medicare and Medicaid to make sure that the old and the destitute uh, don't die of easily treatable diseases. That's not what she's defending. What she's defending is a kind of quote-unquote capitalism. Now, the word capitalism is used by everybody else, uh, refers to a specific mode of production that exists at a certain time in human history, not this moral ideal that, that Rand is talking about. But what she's talking about is a kind of brutal, unregulated capitalism under which, as we just heard, no social security laws, uh, no workplace uh, workplace safety regulation, um, no civil rights laws, uh, no health care you know, provided to people who can't afford private insurance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So even if you disagree with uh, you know, my socialist ideas, even if you think those go too far, you should be able to recognize that this is a, this is a really sociopathic moral ideal that is being, uh, being defended. So, and I should also say that as much as 
uh, Randians like to have it both ways about the relationship between the kind of capitalism they advocate and the kind of capitalism that's actually existed in history, saying, no, 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 you can't blame anything bad on the problems of capitalism. Uh, you can, uh, because it's, it's, it's not real capitalism at the same time, wanting to take credit for capitalism's achievements to say, oh, the good parts are because of the parts that are truly capitalist, right? Everything positive that happened in the Gilded Age in the 19th century that Dan was talking about is because of that. It's only the negative stuff that's uh, that's not because of that. It's more or less the same bait and switch you get from religious believers who say that all the good things about nature testify to the glories of God. All the bad things are a result of original sin. Uh, but uh, if um, But if we're talking about Rand's ideal of capitalism, not only would it be morally grotesque in all the ways that we just went over, it would be one that uh, it wouldn't even be consistent with a thriving economy. Uh, Rand said many times that she wanted a separation of economy and state as total as the separation of church and state in the American constitutional system, which would mean, and we just heard from Dan when he listed off the acceptable functions of government, what wasn't on that list? maintaining public roads that deliveries can happen on, uh, chartering corporations, uh, having, uh, you know, the state minting currency. And of course, without these things, there could be no functional economy at all. We'd have absolute economic collapse if we got rid of those things. So don't take Randian seriously when they want to take credit for the good parts of capitalism. But why does she defend this particularly savage kind of unregulated uh, capitalism with all of its brutal human consequences that we saw in that Gilded Age that Dan was just praising. Well, she justified it uh, by reference to so-called objectivist ethics by which uh, no one ever has a moral duty to sacrifice his or her interests for the interests of anyone else. Or at least she sometimes said that. If you listen closely to Rand or listen closely to Dan just now, it's a little inconsistent because there is an exception for sacrificing your interest to the interests of others when it's a question of sacrificing your interests in the name of respecting libertarian property rights, as when you wash up on an island where all of the uh, all of the usable resources are already private property and no one will share, and uh, you you have a duty, I guess, in that case to to not survive. I'd actually be fascinated to hear uh, what the uh, what the result would be in that scenario. But she certainly thinks that people should have to live pretty miserable lives if that's the consequence of rejecting the right of rich people to keep every last dollar in their bank accounts. What she doesn't think anyone should have to do is to sacrifice their interests, even very slightly, even with a slight increase in the tax rate in order to secure other people's rights to healthcare or housing or education or a voice in what happens in their workplace because she says this would violate objectivist ethics. Well, what on earth is that? Well, Rand liked to make silly statements like her epistemology is objective reality, which is just a nonsensical way of putting together words Everybody thinks what they believe in is objective reality, and epistemology is the uh, is the study of how we figure out which things are objectively true. But pressed for details, uh, she tended to say things like uh, that we should only believe things on the basis of empirical observation of regular non-moral facts. And of course, as David Hume showed centuries ago, uh, there is no way to derive any moral values, whether whether Ayn Rand's or anyone else's from uh, the base non-moral facts. A study of the non-moral facts can tell us how to achieve the moral and political goals we care about. It certainly can't tell us which moral and political goals we should care about in uh, the first place. That doesn't mean there's no role for moral reasoning. There is, but that role is best described by the great 20th century uh, political philosopher, John Rawls, 
uh, who said that what we're doing when we engage in moral reasoning is a process of reflective equilibrium. We're trying to bring the values that we care about together into an internally consistent picture, which might do things like mean doing things like, for example, rejecting certain shallowly held values in favor of deeper, more important values. And of course, when you start doing that, there's absolutely no reason to take Rand's uh, extreme and fairly inhuman value system seriously as a contender. Now, she tried to make it less absurd by constructing a straw man of all the other schools of modern moral philosophy, uh, which she said were all altruism. They were all about pure self-sacrifice. You know, you're not allowed to uh, promote your own flourishing as an individual at all. You have to sac You have to just live for others and sacrifice everything for others. And of course, uh, if those the only options are that purely monkish life of absolute self-sacrifice and being a Randian egoism, well, you know, Randian egoism starts to sound a lot better. But of course, those are not at all the only options. And none of the major options in modern moral philosophy bear any particular resemblance to the straw man. According to utilitarianism, your happiness counts as much as the happiness of anyone else. Uh, according to Kantianism, a view that Rand really hated and said was the source of all the altruism and collectivism, where by altruism, she means not what everybody else in the world means by altruism, the idea that you should sometimes, in some ways, or to some extent, sacrifice your interests to the interests of others, but the idea that you should have to engage in total self-sacrifice. Uh, she described Kantianism as the sort of root of all this in the modern world, but of course, Kant's uh, moral principle, the categorical imperative, states in no uncertain terms that you have moral duties to yourself in exactly the way that you have them to any other people. If you read Kant's groundwork in the Metaphysics of Morals, what if his four examples of an immoral act is failing to develop your talents? His moral principle is that you should always treat humanity, and this is an exact quote, whether your own person or the person of another as a end in itself and not merely as a means to an end. And even a lot of people like me who aren't pure Kantians thinks there's a tremendously important moral insight in there. Of course, it's wrong to treat other human beings as if they were ATM machines who only existed to serve your own personal flourishing. Of course, it would be wrong to enslave the other person on the island. I believe no less than Ayn Rand did, there's no God and no afterlife, and we only have one life to live. But I draw the opposite conclusion because I also realize that everyone else in the world, all those billions of other human beings, also only have one life to live, and they count just as much as I do. And certainly, you know, just to talk about the social democratic minimum program, um, if I can help other people flourish to the best of their potential by supporting a system of taxation under which people have to give up small, some small portion of uh, they have in order uh, in order to pay for things like universal free higher education or universal health care so everybody else can flourish, there's absolutely no way that you can get from any kind of normal recognizable human value system to the conclusion that that would somehow be morally wrong. And remember, finally, that coercion has nothing to do with it. I know I'm running into the limit. This is the last point. That when you talk about taking away other people's property, well, if their property is meant in a legal sense, what's legally their property, that of course taxation can't be taken away their property because legally it's the property of the IRS. If on the other hand, it means morally their property, property they should have, then that reminds us that the issue has absolutely nothing to do with coercion. It's who has a good moral claim to which piece of property 
Rand has her theory, let the chips fall where they may at a free market. I find that a very implausible theory, but maybe we'll be get a good defense of it as the debate goes on. Thank you so much, Dr. Burgess, for your opening statement. Thank you both for your opening statements. So let me go ahead and just let everybody know. Uh, if, this is, if this is your first time with Modern Day Debates, that we are a neutral platform hosting debates on science, religion, and politics. And we want you to feel welcome, no matter what walk of life you're from, no matter if you're an atheist or Christian or theist of any flavor. Uh, second point, if you have a question or a comment for one of tonight's debaters, please fire into the old live chat and be sure to tag me at Modern Day Debates. Super chats go to the top of the list. They will be read first. All we ask is that you please keep it civil and attack the argument, not the person, as insults will not be read. And uh, that goes for the general discourse in the live chat as well. Our invaluable moderators are working tirelessly to elevate the conversation, so please show them and each other and the debaters the respect that they deserve and not hurl insults and attacks at each other. <clears throat> Third, our guests are linked in the description below, whether you're listening on YouTube or via the podcast. So please, if you like what you're hearing, don't feel don't be shy. Please click their links and check them out. Uh, hit the like, hit the like button, hit the subscribe button. Uh, show James that you appreciate the debate so he can keep uh, giving you guys what you love. Uh, tomorrow night, uh, we have another debate coming. Uh, was the moon landing faked? That's going to be T-Jump versus Alex Stein. I think there's another debate uh you know, I don't even have that written down, so I'm not going to mention that. But uh, that is all I have right now. So I'm going to go ahead and kick it over to the open discussion. We have 60 minutes. Doc, uh, gentlemen, the floor is all yours. <clears throat> all right. Because okay. uh, I can respond to some of that. And yeah. uh, all right. So maybe I'll, I'll just start by saying that um, I don't think Rand's view is sociopathic. But if it, if it is, then I think the opposing view is giga sociopathic. So <laughs> I don't think a whole lot is accomplished by throwing out insults. And I, I typically try to avoid that thing and just focus on the arguments. So that's what I, I plan to do here, to focus on the issues. Um, so one issue that Bryn brought up at the at the beginning was this point that coercion is a red herring that, you know, coercion is a part of every system. Um, so that's not really what's at issue. Um, and I've seen him cite Matt Brunig on this. And I read some articles where he's made this point many times in many of his videos. Uh, and I, I think there's an element of truth to this. I think it's true that if you have a certain view of morality, uh, morality, underlies politics. Politics presupposes a certain view of the good. So we have a view of the good, that's morality. And then how does what's good, what's good in the context of human relationships? That's what politics is. So politics is really just an application of ethics. So if you have the wrong ethics, you're going to have the wrong politics. And I think Ben has the wrong ethics. And therefore, he has this, uh, I think he has the wrong view of coercion. And likewise, he thinks I have the wrong view of ethics. And therefore, I have the wrong view of coercion. So I think it would be uh, perhaps fruitful if we now go down to the ethical level and see if we can get at this deeper uh, layer of, of disagreements in the moral sphere. So from what I understand, uh, having seen some other of your content, you think that um, it's, I guess you think other people have like, do other people have a right to what I produce? Let's say we're on the island, to, to mm -hmm. go back to the island example. Let's say I, I build something. 
does that give me a, a moral claim to what I've built? Do I have a, a moral right to that or does somebody else, assuming there's, there's one other person on the island who has not built what I've built? It might give you a moral claim. It's not an indefeasible moral claim. Uh, it's, uh, it's not absolute. I don't think that, you know, if, for example, uh, somebody's, uh, somebody's going to die or be maimed uh, in, a, uh, in a hurricane, uh, if, they, uh, if they can't shelter under it, that you're, uh, that you're right to the fruits of your labor, uh, which, of course, workers uh, lose under capitalism, we should also note that, uh, overrides, uh, overrides uh, someone, else's, uh, someone else's right to shelter. But I should also say, I actually don't think it's true that uh, the difference about how we talk about coercion is a result of difference in uh, deep moral views. I think, that they, I think that it's just true that if you use the word coercion in a non-moral sense, right, not in a normative sense that, you know, you're using it to mean bad coercion or unjust coercion, but you're just using it in a morally neutral way to refer to, you know, the use of force to, you know, to, uh, you know, the, the use of, you know, the use of force or threats of force uh, to, you know, to make somebody do something like, for example, to exclude them from scarce resources, then it's just trivially true that all claims to property involve threats of coercion. Now, of course, if you want to redefine the word coercion and use it not in the way that you know it's ordinarily used, which I just gave, but you want to use it in a moralized way, so it only counts as coercion if it's bad or wrong, then sure, our differences in whether this counts as coercion could have to do with the differences in our, uh, in our moral views. But I would just argue that, that's, uh, that if that's what it means, saying that what we're arguing about coercion begs the question because you're just assuming that the you know that the right view about what counts as bad or unjust coercion is the one that you're starting with but of course the whole thing that we're arguing about is whether particular forms of coercion would be bad or unjust okay so you've mentioned that there's a neutral sense of coercion and then there's a moral sense of coercion according to which it's it's morally bad i'm not i don't typically think of myself as using coercion in a norm in a neutral sense a non-normative sense maybe you mean just a descriptive sense yeah, um I, I just i just made a descriptive sense that you're you know that you're using force or the threat of force uh to make somebody do something for example to exclude them from use of uh, scarce resources and if you are using it in a normatively loaded sense, if you know if what you mean by coercion is actually bad or unjust coercion, at that point, it's not that we disagree about you know about whether coercion is okay or not. It's that we disagree about whether, for example, redistributing existing property would count as coercion. Okay, so um, maybe it'd be useful to bring in the distinction between initiation of force and initiated force and retaliatory force because i i'm not sure we would agree that the same things that we would use the same label for the same act so if i if i uh if i build a shelter on the islands and then uh someone else arrives on the islands and let's say they need that shelter to get out of a hurricane and i say no you, you can't come into this shelter that i built in order to save yourself would i be initiating force against that person if i well, if i keep them out the problem is that there is no uh normatively neutral way 
to, to decide what counts as initiating force because uh, people who talk who like to talk about initiating force, uh, they don't literally just mean, you know, the, the first person to, you know, to use violence or threats of violence. That's what it sounds like. But that wouldn't actually capture the distinction that they're going for. So, for example, you know, if, if I, uh, you know, as a cat burglar, right, you know, stealthily uh, take your uh, take your TV out of your living room, there's there's no there's no violence involved. You know, you were you know, asleep or you were on vacation, you know what happened uh, and you use the and you find out. Right. And either you personally or, you know, I don't know, some the police or some private security force. Uh, you know, use threats of violence to uh, to to get it back from me, right? You know that that you that you say that if I don't if I don't you know return it on my own accord, uh, you know you're going to uh, you know you're going to violently take it from me. Is that initiation of force or not? My understanding is that everybody who talks the way that you're talking, you know, using the sort of phrases like the initiation of force in standard objectivist or libertarian ways, would say no, 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 uh, you're not initiating force when you do that. But what that really shows is that it's initiation of force is misleading. There's a kind of shell game here because you're saying, you know, you're not really talking about who's the first person to do something violent. You're talking about who's the first person to violate a property right, a moral property right. But then, of course, the whole issue is who has what moral property rights, right? Morally, who should have what piece of property? And your answer to that question is going to be the same as your answer to who's initiating force in a conflict. There's no way that any version of this could do any argumentative work, you know, because you're, you know, you're always already packing in where all the action is, which is that who actually has a moral claim on some piece of property. Okay. So if the, the more fundamental issue than what is coercion is mm -hmm what do we have a moral claim to then then let's talk about that because i, I want to try to yeah. get down to the to the root of the, the disagreement so i asked earlier if i build something by myself mm -hmm. on, on the islands do i have a moral claim to that and and you said something like well maybe in a general way i yeah, do you have, you have but a claim some... not not an indefeasible claim you know there could right. be other so things that could override okay it. yeah so maybe uh in an emergency situation someone could right okay so if it's not in an emergency situation then i have a moral right to what i produce oh, that's an example i'm sure you can come up with other scenarios under which even in this sort of island example uh, you know, I might I might agree that you know that there's uh, that you don't have an exclusive right to a hundred percent of what you produce. Uh, I would I would also, by the way, again I would say if you know if you really believe in this this principle, which which I don't, right? That the that there's there's a sort of absolute moral entitlement uh, to anything that you uh, that you produce, which you know um, I think has some some pretty grim results uh if you if taken seriously right you know because that would mean that people who are incapable of uh of working you know do for example severe disabilities uh wouldn't have an entitlement to to anything you know that they uh, that they would have to just hope uh that uh, that somebody who did have such an entitlement generously felt like sharing with them you know but they they wouldn't have uh, they wouldn't have their own claim on anything i certainly don't 
agree with that. I think that, yeah, I think generally speaking, I think the fact that you are the person who produces something, uh, you know, gives you, uh, gives you some claim on it. I think that they have a, that, you know, all else being equal, that's a pretty good reason to, uh, to think, um, to think that you should, uh, that you should, uh, you should have it. Uh, but, uh, but I also think that there, there are other, there are other morally important factors in, uh, in deciding uh, what counts as a just uh, distribution of resources. I think that the point about uh, large-scale inequalities uh, that are due to factors completely outside of your control is, uh, is, a, you know, is, is something that gives us a powerful reason to support or oppose uh, given distributions of resources. I think the very fact so beloved by objectivists uh, that, that we all have a right to, you know, to pursue our, our own uh, individual flourishing, our best lives, uh, you know, gives, uh, you know, is it grounds certain claims about distribution of resources. If you need certain material, a certain material base to have even a fighting chance at having a good life, you know, I, I think that that's something that, that gives you a moral claim on it. I think that morality is pretty complicated and you're probably not going to be able to plausibly uh, boil this down to, uh, to, you know, to one or two, um, you know, to one or two principles and just extrapolate everything from there, unless maybe their principles like, you know, a just social order is the kind that, you know, that you would endorse from behind Rawls's veil of ignorance, maybe, uh, and that the, and that, you know, whatever the correct rules are, the ones that would be part of that just social order, something like that might be a plausible sort of general, you know, like extremely general thing that you could try to get everything else from. But unless we're talking about something like that, you know, I think there are, there are multiple values that are important. And, you know, I, I don't think just reducing everything to one, like a labor entitlement principle uh, is plausible. And by the way, even if I did, I would be very skeptical that, um, that capitalism honors that principle, uh, given, of course, that, uh, you know, that, that, you know, workers uh, under capitalism generally speaking, have no realistic choice except to contract away, uh, you know, the uh, lion's share of the, uh, the, you know, results of their efforts. And, you know, I would question whether that's a, you know, a truly free choice, but, you know, maybe that's a slightly different argument. Okay. There's a lot there. So um, I mean, one thing I'll say is I think everyone flourishes best under the kind of system I advocate for the, I think there's more opportunity in a capitalist system of the sort I advocate than anywhere else, any other kind of system. I think people who came here in the 19th century in the, in the uh, so-called Gilded Age, which I think maybe is better called the progressive age because it was, there was so much progress made in that area, in that era, they came here for the opportunities to make their lives better. I think capitalism makes opportunity, uh, increases it dramatically over any other system. For people who can't work on their own, I think it's a tiny minority, um, and I think there would be abundant charity, private charity, uh, you know, people out of benevolence who would be, if they're, you know, so much of their wealth weren't seized by the government, I think many people would uh, offer more to the um, to people who who need private charity to survive. But it's, I think that kind of thing is a red herring against capitalism because it's such a trivial, tiny amount, especially you know, in day of the internet you can just do data entry on a computer even if you're disabled you can earn money somehow you can support yourself i think it's it's easy um i do want to go back to uh this the, the uh island yeah, case 
Okay. Hold on. You you spoke okay. for a while. Okay. Now, so let, let me make okay. another point here. Okay. Um, if, if we're back on the islands, um, you said in general, um, if someone produces something, they have a moral claim to it. So I wanna I wanna see how if I sure. can you know build on this example. Let's say that there's there's two people on the islands and one becomes radically more uh, wealthy than the other, like Jeff Bezos mm. level. Uh, wealth, like um, a thousand, a, a million times more wealthy than the other, maybe because, you know, the other is just less talented, less capable. He can support himself. He can live on his own, but he just doesn't have the genius of the other guy. Um, so there's massive wealth inequality. They both produce whatever amount of wealth they had on their own. Now, does each have a moral claim to everything that uh, he produced? Or does one have a moral claim to what the other produced? I'll, I'll uh, leave it there for now. Sure. So I think that the um, so I think that in the scenario you're describing, uh, no, I don't think that the uh, that uh, somebody who in the impossible scenario, right, where you could somehow uh, have Jeff Bezos to an Amazon worker levels of wealth inequality within two people on an island, uh, I would argue you can only have that level of wealth inequality given um, you know, structural power within a system that people have no realistic choice but to participate in. Uh, but given that impossible premise, then I would say, no, they don't, partially because of your description, right? Because you said that, the, that, this, uh, that this is a result, that level of wealth inequality is a result of talents uh, that, you know, that one person has that another person doesn't have. Now, to the extent that one person- So, so you're, just to be clear, so, you're no, saying- let's, let's just, well, well, I'm about to explain it, right? So they have- He, a, he so doesn't I, have the moral claim? So, so I don't think that he has a moral claim to all of it, no. And here's why not, right? That they have, remember the, you know, pretty much the first thing I said after the point about coercion in the opening statement was about equality of opportunity, what kind of equality of opportunity we should believe in. The principle of equality of opportunity I endorsed what J.A. Cohen called socialist equality of opportunity is that uh, inequalities, or at least large-scale inequalities, uh, are at least as a default, at least all will speed equal. We can balance this against other values, but they are unjust if they trace back to things that are outside of your own control. Now, in the uh, so that grounds a certain amount of labor entitlement, you know, that if, if it's just, you know, one person chooses to work and the other one doesn't, right? You know, that that might give uh, that might give the person who chooses to work, you know, a superior claim, uh, maybe not an absolute claim, but certainly a superior claim on the product of uh, of their labor. But um even in your scenario, the way that you laid it out, you know, if the if the difference in talents is due to one person, you know, voluntarily choosing to, you know, to work on developing their talents, you know, and uh, while the other person doesn't, that wouldn't be as bad. It might be objectionable for other reasons, but not for this reason. But if we're just talking about people who innately uh, have uh, have greater talents uh, talents than others, then no, I don't, you know, I don't believe in, in meritocracy. I think, I think that that's, I think that that's a grotesquely undesirable moral ideal. I don't think that the fact that you're uh, that uh, that you're born with greater talents, but in itself gives you gives you a moral claim on a greater share of uh, of society's of society's resources. And I would also say that the issue about uh, private charity is not just that 
people have um, that, you know, there are people who uh, would, you know, would become destitute, uh, you know, with, without, uh, you know, without redistributive programs, although that's certainly true. It's not just that there are people who die without it, although that's certainly true. Uh, you know, if, if, you know, man's goal is the survival, I would point out that the advanced uh, social democracies in the world are doing way better in terms of life expectancy than the comparatively uh, more robustly capitalist uh, United States. And where, for example, people die because their uh, medical GoFundMes aren't fully funded. But even if everybody could get, you know, some level of sustenance and a long life, uh, by living off of uh, of private charity, if, if for example they were unable to work, uh, then I would still say that forcing people to rely on private charity is incredibly degraded, and it makes them unfree because they have a. If you have a right, a positive right to healthcare, for example, just for being a human being, you know, just for being part of a social order, uh, then nobody is in any position to take it away from you on a whim. Whereas if you're dependent on, uh, on private charity, then definitionally uh, they are able to take it away from you on a whim. And I'd say a society where everybody's trying to craft uh, a, more, a more compelling, you know, attention grabbing sob story on GoFundMe than everybody else is one that's far worse for both freedom and human dignity than one with uh, robustly redistributive universal social programs. Okay. So there's a lot there. Um, I mean, government can take things away on a whim too. I, I don't think that's, that's uh, more likely to, to happen under capitalism. Nope. I think people are going to be more secure um, and there's going to be less need uh, of charity. And again, I don't think you can talk about problems today and pin them on capitalism, like medical GoFundMes or whatever. We've had so much government intervention or interference in the healthcare industry and so many other um, industries, I, I don't think you can um, blame something that happens today on capitalism like that. I want to go back to this point about equality of opportunity. Um, I don't, I, I don't think that's a legitimate form of uh, of equality to advocate. I believe in equality before the law. So you have the same laws for rich people and for poor people. But equality of opportunity, no, I, I reject that. Um, so let, let me give some examples of, of why. So imagine you're beautiful. You have more opportunities to be a model, to be on TV. Now, is that unfair that some people are more beautiful than, than others? Should we disfigure the people who are beautiful in order to equalize opportunity of being a model? Take LeBron James. He was you know, physically gifted. He's a giant man. Uh, I mean, most people can't do what he does. Should everyone have the equal opportunity to be an NBA player? The only way you can equalize opportunity is to tear down the people who have more skill or, or innate, innate talent or innate DNA, whatever it is that they got lucky with. Um, Einstein is a genius. Not everyone's going to have the opportunity to become a genius physicist like he was. Are we going to stifle the mind of Einstein in order not to offend the people who are not as smart? I, I think equality of opportunity is a terrible thing to aim for. I think everyone should take whatever they are innately given and try to make the most of it and not spend their life whining that someone else has more than they do. Uh, 
I think the whole issue, and this gets to John Rawls, the mm -hmm. issue of fairness does not apply when you are talking about uh, metaphysically given facts, like things you were born with and didn't choose. It's not unfair that you weren't born as beautiful as someone else. You might be unlucky, or if you're beautiful, it's not that it was fair that you were beautiful, you just got lucky. Same way uh, if you, uh, you're playing a lottery and you, you uh, don't get the winning ticket. It doesn't mean you were treated unfairly, it just means you were unlucky. Now, if you got the winning ticket and then they didn't pay you what you were supposed to get, that would be unfair because there was a choice involved. There was a volitional choice. Someone could choose to make something happen, follow through on the agreement of the lottery, we pay the winner or not. But when something is not open to choice, the issue of fairness or unfairness doesn't even apply. The concept is invalid in that context. So I think that's the that's the basic problem with John Rawls, and that undercuts a, a lot of his uh, policy prescriptions. Um, and I think I yeah I'll, I'll just pause there and throw it back to oh, you. Sure. So um, on the uh, on the subject of uh, LeBron James and beautiful people being models and all that, I think there might be some confusion. The claim is not that people shouldn't be allowed to have talents. People shouldn't be allowed to develop talents that the distribution of talents by nature should be corrected. Uh, nobody has ever said that. Uh, I certainly haven't, neither has anybody else in the history of philosophy. What I have said is that the distribution of material resources uh, shouldn't be wildly unequal on the basis of those talents. So of course, should LeBron James be allowed to play basketball? Of course he should. But uh, I do not think that uh, that he he therefore has some sort of absolute sacred right to uh, to every penny that he earns playing basketball. I think it's fine uh, to tax away all or even most uh, of LeBron James. You know, not all, but you know, to, to tax away quite a bit or even most of LeBron James's income uh, in order to make everybody else's life better, to provide a fair floor for everybody else to try to flourish in life. And perhaps, you know, a deep difference between us morally is that I just don't think that would be equivalent to breaking LeBron James's, uh, you know, leg so, you know, he can't play basketball better than anybody else or whatever the other example was, uh, you know, uh, uglifying, uh, you know, uh, supermodels. So, you know, so they won't get more modeling opportunities a la uh, Kurt Vonnegut's Harrison uh, Bergeron uh, that, you know, of course, those things would be unjust. People have a right to bodily integrity, that's a tremendously important value that when we're balancing values to decide what the right thing to do is, we have to take that into account. Uh, of course, people, uh, you know, people have, uh, have a right uh, to, you know, to act on and, you know, develop their talents. But I don't think that people have a right to every dollar that comes into their bank account from some sort of free market process uh, and I don't see any reason, I certainly haven't heard any reason why I should believe in such a right. Now, you said fairness doesn't come when things aren't open to choice. I'm a little unclear about what that means. Remember, my claim about choice and fairness is that if the distribution of resources uh, or the distribution of power, et cetera, uh, is linked to factors that you have no choice in, then that distribution uh, is at least you know, prima facie unjust, right? You know, perhaps 
there are other values that, you know, that like, would, you know, once we weigh it against it, you know, if we have to allow that distribution or the economy will fall apart or something, they might, you know, luckily say it's, it's, it's the, uh, it's, it's acceptable after all, but at least on first blush, the default, right, should be thinking that that distribution is unjust. If we can correct that distribution without having to, you know, smash the faces of any supermodels or, you know, or, or do anything else that would violate fundamental rights like that, then we should do that. Uh, because, of course, I don't believe, and I haven't heard a good reason to believe, that people have a fundamental right to every dollar that comes their way by the result of some sort of uh, free market uh, of free market process. So, uh, I mean, should we tear down uh, anybody to to achieve uh, to achieve robust equality of opportunity? Uh, well, if tearing them down uh, means you know redistributing uh, you know some income that they would otherwise have, then sure, I don't have a problem with that because I don't you know I don't believe to steal one that's not my own that we have nerve endings in every dollar in our bank accounts. But uh, but if tearing down means like not letting people you know have model not letting people be models or not letting people uh, play basketball. No, I don't advocate that. Uh, nobody advocates it. But I will say one of the things that oftentimes debates are good for is at least even if you, know, you can't agree on positions, or at least clarifies the differences between positions. And I have to say, as much as I find you know pure equality before the law a pretty paltry and um, unappealing sort of limit to the kind of equality that we should believe in, right? You know, there's that wonderful Anatole France quote about the law and its majestic equality forbidding rich and poor alike from sleeping under bridges and begging in the streets or stealing bread. Uh, you know, I, I don't think that's that's worth much as ideal of equality. I do find it incredibly refreshing to hear a defender of capitalism say, I don't believe in equality of opportunity. I think that's really useful and clarifying. All right. <clears throat> Thank you. So, um... I didn't really see a principal difference between being not okay with uh, disfiguring somebody in order mm. to um, achieve equality of opportunity, but you are okay with seizing someone's property. I mean, some people, depending on your situation in life, you might you might rather have one than the other or the other rather than the one. I mean, if it's a little scar is if it's a huge scar, maybe I'll take some disfigurement if it's going to save me, you know, 50 percent of my income. So I, I'm not really seeing a principal difference between the kind of um, equality you are and are not OK with equality of opportunity you are and are not OK with. Um, I think when you try to have the kind of uh, equality of uh, opportunity that you talk about, you lose equality before the law. So now not everyone has the same rights to what they've produced. Um, let's see, I, let, I wanna go back to the, um, so you said earlier that even if one guy on the islands, when there's two people, one guy earns way more. It doesn't matter if it's a million times more, a hundred times more, a thousand times. It's a lot more. But you said in that case, even though both have produced what what they have, you don't think either. You, you, I guess you don't you don't think one, the guy who has a lot more, has a moral claim to all of his stuff. And I, I don't recall 
why that is. Could could you could you address that? Uh, sure, happily. So to to go back to the beginning of those remarks, you said you don't see any principal difference between physical disfigurement and redistribution of resources. I think I gave several times what the principal difference is. You have a right to uh, bodily integrity. Uh, that the uh, that uh, that you have. Um, that it would be an incredible violation of personal freedom uh, to, uh, to, to disfigure somebody's body against their will. The fact that uh, I do not believe that it would be an incredible violation of personal freedom to uh, take away uh, some of somebody's money. I think, that the, I think that your person is much more integral uh, to, uh, to who you are and what kinds of rights you can reasonably claim uh, than uh, than external property, and certainly than external property uh, in uh, in in money. Uh, that the fact that you might prefer to be disfigured, right? You know that uh, that you know Jeff Bezos, you know, might prefer to be physically disfigured than to have you know um, two thirds of you know his income taken away or whatever. Uh, has nothing to do with it, uh, you know, one way or the other. I mean, they, you know, uh, we both agree that. You know, people don't have the right to everything that they prefer. Uh, that that's a that's a completely different question from what rights people can plausibly assert. You know, what they would prefer to uh, to have happen. You know, you have a, you know, it, it could be that you know that you would uh, if you're a hardcore racist in you know the South in 1963. You know, it could be that you say I would rather I would rather die uh, than, uh, than than see black people given the vote, and maybe you really mean it. But the fact is, you still have a right to life and you do not have a right to deny uh, black people the vote. So, I mean, your preferences have nothing to do with it. I'm also confused by the claim uh, that equality before the law is uh, is lost if you have progressive taxation. In other words, you know, which is, I believe what I heard, right? If the, that if you, uh, if that's not your claim, please correct me. But, you know, that if if some incomes are taxed at a higher rate than other, uh, than other incomes, uh, that that violates equality before the law. I'd certainly say that's just that's not you know certainly normally how equality before the law is understood. Uh, I, I need to hear a lot more about what the conception of equality before uh, you know before the uh, the law is. I think that it's certainly something that um, you know. I think that uh, that if the kind of equality we care about is just that, like. Everybody is subject to the same laws that everybody else is. Then, you know, progressive income tax certainly fits that standard. If the kind of equality we care about is everybody's interests are taken into account in the same way, uh, in the way that Rawls, for example, cares about, then you know, I think that I think that's consistent with it too. It sounds like we're talking about some third conception of what equality before the law is that I don't really understand. But on your direct question at the end there. So uh, when we're talking about the two guys on the island, uh, of course, nobody's earning anything on an island. I mean, by definition, you know, you need a you need a more complex society than two people to have like earning, right? That suggests that uh, that suggests that you have you know money you know being distributed that you know you have you know you have profits or wages you know unless the word earning is being used in some eccentric way, but. Um, you know, if you just mean that, you know, that one person has harvested more coconuts than the other or something like that, uh, then um, then does, uh, does, the, uh, does the one who's, uh, who's harvested far more than the other uh, have a right to keep all of his? And does the one who's harvested far fewer have a right only to his? And what I said is that that depends on the reason why one of them has harvested uh, so many more than the other. Um, 
that you know that the the sort of the the version of equality of opportunity that I've been arguing for would uh, would tell us that if uh, it's it's a matter of free choice that the the one guy uh, has has simply chosen to spend more hours a day harvesting coconuts than the other or something like that, then uh, then I think that he would have a much better claim on keeping all of them. Maybe not an absolute claim if the other ones could starve to death or something like that, right? You know, there could be things that would uh, that would override that, but he'd have a much better claim. Whereas if it has to do with a factor that is outside of uh, of your control, then uh, the mere fact that uh, that that you have more, that you're able to get more by itself, I would argue, has a lot less moral weight because you know we generally think, I think correctly, that uh, that it's unreasonable to have a different different distribution of material resources based on things that you you can't control. You know, no matter what you do, whether that's being born into a certain caste or having a certain skin color or uh, inherited wealth, uh, or even uh, having certain uh, talents that, uh, that other people don't have. I think in a society where, uh, let's say, the only way to have a good life uh, and have your material needs met was to, uh, was to be good at basketball, uh, then no, I mean, I wouldn't want to disfigure anybody, but I would absolutely not think that that was a just society because there is an extent to which we can't control how good we are at uh, at basketball. There's an extent to which you can, you can practice, but there's a considerable extent to which you can. And to that extent, I think that sort of meritocratic ideal is objectionable for the same reason that racism or caste systems or any of those other systems that assign resources based on factors outside of your control are unjust. Okay. Um, I, I'm still not clear on uh, whether you think in the, the case where both on the islands are producing and they're supporting themselves, that one is just way better. You can get a hundred times more. It's not that maybe it is out of, out of their control. Maybe one is just genetically um, more capable for whatever reason. Um, it makes them more uh, able to uh, survive on the islands. So it's, but I don't think um, like, I don't think that makes a difference in terms of, uh the moral claims like if one is genetically just endowed such that he can get a hundred times more a thousand times more than the other uh i don't think that means the one who can get less has a moral claim over the more talented guy so i guess i'm i don't see your reason for for disagreeing with that so you said if depending on the reason for the discrepancy, if it's due to factors out of their control, um, then you're more inclined to say that um, the one who is better off just due to luck, um, he has less of a moral claim than if it was due to something entirely within his control. Mm -hmm. And um, I just I don't see any justification for that. Okay, I mean, I, I think I gave it several times, but I'm happy to give it again. I think that the uh, I, I think that uh, I think that it's the exact same reason uh, that uh, that we object to, uh, to to any system that systematically disfavors people on the basis of factors with outside outside of their control. I don't see a principal difference between saying 
that some people should have much worse lives than other people because of their skin color, because of what caste they're born into, uh, or uh, or because uh, or because of uh, whether or not uh, they you know what their natural endowments are and some set of talents that happen to be favored uh, by some. Those system. people shouldn't be penalized. But it, that's different than saying they have a moral claim over what others have produced. We shouldn't penalize people because of some factor that is out of their control, like their skin color or their gender. But we're not talking about penalizing the person who produces less. It's not a penalty to not give him something that he hasn't produced. It would be a gift to him. It would be penalty well, if but he that's, took but away that's, what he had produced. But that, that distinction only makes sense if you're just assuming the thing that hasn't been established, and I haven't heard the slightest reason to believe yet tonight, which is that uh, everybody has a right, uh, an absolute right to everything that they produce. Again, even though that principle is obviously inconsistent with capitalism, it's I still think it's a bad principle that they have a, that uh, that if... Uh, be you know if because of factors that are totally outside of your control uh, you are able to uh, produce much less the idea that you know you therefore uh, you know that uh, that it's therefore fine if you have a much worse life I don't I don't see any reason to believe that I mean say that it's a gift if um, you know it's it's a gift to redistribute and it's a penalty and, and it's a penalty to redistribute from those are both claims that only make sense given the the premise that I just don't see any reason to accept that everybody just uh, just has a right to to whatever they can get in what you would see as reasonable ground rules whether we're talking about the island or we're talking about a uh, a free market economy and you know I think look I think that a lot of the reasons that inequality is unjust are are um, you know inapplicable to a contrived situation like an island uh, you know because a lot of the bad things about inequality, like some people having no realistic choice to go to than to go to work for others and have to uh, and and have to give up so much of their autonomy in that process, uh, you know, like some people having more political influence than others, etc., aren't going to apply in an island. But yeah, I think that the I think that if like every coconut on the island was efficiently harvested by one person, so that the uh, the other person, you know, simply had to beg or do whatever the first person wanted. Uh, to uh, to to get the coconuts they needed to survive, then yeah, I would absolutely say that the uh, that the person who was in that position because of factors outside of his control uh, would would have a very good claim to uh, to to take uh, to take some of the coconuts. I wouldn't have the slightest problem with that. If it's an emergency situation where you're going to die if you don't take the other person's coconuts, then it's okay to take the other person's coconuts, even if it involves coercion, because we're talking about an emergency situation, like you steal a loaf of bread because that's the only way you can live. But we're not talking about an emergency situation. I'm just talking about a situation where someone is vastly better, maybe for reasons outside of his control, he's just genetically endowed, he's vastly better at producing wealth than the other person. So there's a vast amount of wealth inequality. So. Um, that's a different situation than an emergency case where you have to do it in order to live. You can support yourself in a very modest, meager way, perhaps, but it's that's that's a different scenario. It's it's not an emergency. Yeah, I mean, but the the emergency thing is an interesting, you know, is an interesting loophole because I think that loophole might be a lot bigger than than you might want to recognize, right? You know, that that if somebody. Uh, especially given uh, the way that this was set up in the first place, right? So if there are, um, you know, because I said not that the person was going to die 
if they didn't steal, but that they would have to beg or they would have to do whatever it was. They would have to meet whatever conditions the other person imposed to get any of the coconuts that they didn't need, you know, that, uh, that were going to rot there uh, if, they, uh, if they, weren't, uh, they weren't redistributed. And so if you think that that counts as an emergency, right, then, then I think that's, a, that's, that's like a, a loophole you could drive a semi-truck through in terms of your defense of libertarian property rights, because uh, in that same sense, like any working class person uh, under most circumstances, you know, some people eventually succeed in starting their own businesses, et cetera. But under most circumstances, uh, most working class people under capitalism would be in that state, that same state of emergency, right? You know, that they, they only, they're only able to, uh, they're only able to make a living by submitting to the will of an employer. So, 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 so if the, if the, if the first case is an emergency, then so is the second case. And we're kind of done with capitalism. Now, it's easy as cake to survive under capitalism. There'll be so much opportunity. Unbelievable. I mean, just well, get rid sure, of minimum sure, wage sure. laws, for one thing. I mean, think of all the people who Yeah, who I mean, if you got rid of minimum wage, law, wage laws, you, so, you, would, you would immiserate tens of millions of people. The, uh, out of, out of, out of no. course, societies with higher wage floors, again, you have the higher standard of living. I know that you want to play this game where everything, everything that's bad about American capitalism is because of the young capitalist parts. It's because of the state intervention. Everything good uh, is because of the, uh, the capitalist parts. I would suggest that the empirical record shows that societies with stronger unions and much stronger state intervention uh, have vastly more human flourishing. Mm -hmm. But if what you mean by as easy as cake to survive under capitalism is that you can you can get a job, okay. But in that same sense, as easy as cake for the person in the situation I described uh, to survive on Coconut Island because uh, because as long as they beg or fulfill whatever conditions are given uh, by the person with all the coconuts, they can survive. So if you think that no, you know that stealing is justified in the latter case because it's an emergency then everyday life for people who aren't in a position nope. to start their own business under capitalism is well, one great big never let's let Dr. emergency. Let's let Dr. Norton. And the poor people with their iPhones are in such dire emergencies. In well, I mean, that's, that, that's, that's a spectacularly silly example. Dying I, on I, the I, streets. I love the iPhone I love it when case. socialists paint I all love these, the iPhone you know, case. Hold on, guys. Because we, we, we constructed say, a society where it's impossible yeah. to Dr. get around with the smartphone. Oh, it's easy. He was going to say how it was easy. He was going to give us a, a layout of how it's easy to live under capitalism. I think. Yeah, I mean, it's so it's so many. There's so much demand for for people to do labor. There's an infinite amount of work that could be done, and uh, I mean, it's if you can hire people for ten bucks an hour, hire kids who are just getting started in the workforce, get a little bit of experience. All that is made impossible. Like I said before, during, during earlier in the debate, you know, you can just get on a computer and do some data entry and support yourself. It's easy as cake. It's easier it's ever been to survive. So there is, it's just a total fantasy, I think, that the um, picture that socialists portray of how people are going to be dying in the streets under capitalism. Um, well, people, yeah. people do die. People do die in the United States in lots of ways that they don't. Uh, in uh, in situations with robust more robust social democracy, uh, you know we do have a lower life expectancy uh, than uh, than countries that have uh, that have adopted uh, that have adopted things like universal health care or that uh, or that have made all the inroads into the prerogatives of capital that the uh, the Nordic social democracies have. Uh, but also, again, I do want to point out 
the the sort of rich absurdity of defenders of capitalism saying that under circumstances where we're making it harder and harder to even function uh, in your day-to-day life without having a smartphone, that having a smartphone uh, is a sign that you can't really have any problems or, you know, complaints about the uh, the distribution of resources. But more no, importantly- No, it's not an emergency. You're, try- you're trying to have it both ways on the emergency question. Sorry, can I finish? You're trying to have it both ways on the emergency question because uh, in the Coconut Island case, you're saying that if the only ways to survive are to either steal or to, you know, abase yourself to the person with all the coconuts and fulfill whatever conditions he gives you uh, for uh, for getting coconuts, that that's an emergency and you can steal. But then you're saying, oh, it's easy as cake to survive under capitalism. When what you mean by easy as cake is it's easy if you're willing to accept a job under whatever conditions the people who have more resources are willing uh, to provide you with that job under to you know to submit to poverty wages in the minimum wage real world etc cetera, etc cetera. but that's an exact parallel to the coconut island case that yeah nope. if you're willing i mean you haven't given me a disanalogy yet because if in the coconut island case if you're willing to meet whatever conditions the person with all the coconuts gives you uh, for uh, for getting some of the coconuts that it's easy as cake to survive in exactly the same sense if you're willing to take a job for under under whatever circumstances it's offered to you, that it's easiest cake to survive under capitalism. Maybe there's a disanalogy somewhere, but I sure haven't heard it. Uh, I mean, this he doesn't know this coconut apple uh, that we keep referring to is an example that Vosh gave. It's kind of vulgar, so we haven't given the full details exactly as he gives it. Um, but anyway, that's not the I'm talking about Coconut Island. I was talking about someone who is producing stuff. He's built a house. He's built some kind of shelter. We're not just talking about coconuts you picked off the ground. Someone is just vastly superior than the other. That was the example I was giving. Um, but to compare an emergency situation where you don't have enough coconuts to eat or something else to eat or you're going to die to working a job in a factory where you have a reliable, you can just waltz in there, easily work your shift, go home and and, and live on, you know, for however long you want to do that. To call that an emergency is just an invalid comparison. Well, I mean, it's an emergency in precisely the same sense that if you're willing no, to... No, you're not going to uh, die the next if, day. Well, well, you well you're going to die. You're, you're going to die if you don't have a job. What you're saying when you say it's easy sure, to Sure, but it's to easy survive, to get that job. Sure, and it's easy to fulfill the guy with all the coconuts conditions for getting one of the coconuts. And I have no idea why it's supposed to make a difference whether you're harvesting coconuts or you're producing in uh, in some other way, I would also in point one case, out that, you're, that, that in, your, in your in your factory example, well, again, but you haven't told me why it's justified. One, what makes it an emergency? Because it's an emergency. <laughs> but what makes one an emergency? That's the point of dispute. The time because, span. You're about to die. So, well, you're only going to die if you don't get one of the coconuts, but it's easy yeah. as cake for you to do so if you're willing to meet the guy's conditions the same way that under capitalism, uh, if you're willing to meet an employer's conditions, then it's easy as cake to survive. I also want to point out that in your factory example, I think it's very revealing to pair that up with what you said earlier about how the closest we've gotten to you know, quote unquote real capitalism is the 19th century. Uh, well, let's think about it. It's, you, know, you just waltz in and you do your shift and you go home. Well, um, that shift, right? How long is that shift? And uh, in the in the 19th century, I mean, how long is that shift uh, in the uh, in in you know early under early capitalism? 
How long was it before capitalism when you have to work? Sure, I mean, I mean that's, I mean, that's obviously that's obviously ir- irrelevant. I mean, nobody's defending capitalism <laughs> that they have a well. Capitalism no, I mean, that's, has that's, reduced that's, the workday. Yes, uh, I do well, want to try to get you guys to have enough, have even amounts of time. So I don't know who's talking more. I just want to try to even it out. I'm just, I'm sorry, I don't want to take over too much. I just want to even it out a little bit. Uh, probably, probably Ben. I would estimate has said more. Um, not to fault him for that, but. Um, yeah, I think uh, capitalism has improved the the conditions of working people. I, I think a lot of times unions are given credit for things that were already happening thanks to uh, the forces of capitalism, free market uh, working themselves out. And then the unions just came along later and have, you know, uh, stamped it, rubber stamped it and made it law. Um, so, yeah, I think... Uh, things have gotten progressively better over time in large part thanks to the progress it's not no longer necessary to have children working because we're so productive that we can afford people can afford to you know raise them give them education instead of working in the fields so um that's part of the progress that's a testament to the success of of capitalism now there is things get even better than they were in the 19th century i'm not saying you know capitalism is not a static system where it's you know stuck the way it was 150 years ago. It's always getting better. So maybe you know uh, if if we allow capitalism to continue its 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 work, we can uh, you know that maybe the average workday will sh- shrink down to four hours instead of eight hours. Um, so I, I don't think that um, it's yeah it's we can we can credit capitalism for the increased quality of life that we have weekends that sort of thing. It's not due to the to the uh, uh, alleged benevolence of the government interfering. Well, I mean that's just flatly historically wrong. Eight out, like not only were eight-hour day laws ferociously resisted uh, by the robber barons, so were the twelve-hour day laws when those were first passed. That was tremendously controversial at the time. The claim that what was what was already existed was just rubber stamped is just as easily checkably historically inaccurate as a claim about this sort of thing uh, can, uh, can, can be. Uh, and, and, I, and certainly the fact the, you know, that uh, capitalism is better than feudalism, which is, it is in lots of ways. Now, not necessarily in terms of actual hours worked uh, per year. I think feudal peasants uh, actually, if you, you know, if you add up all of the, you know, this, the saints days and feast days and all of that stuff, uh, I, I think that you know, I think the average feudal peasant uh, was was actually uh, was actually working uh, fewer hours a year. But overall, sure, I mean, not by that metric, but by many metrics, uh, that the is is capitalism better than feudalism? Sure, but no socialist has ever denied that. In fact, every socialist who's ever existed has emphasized that fact. Read you know the first chapter of the Communist Manifesto. It's all about that fact that the. The fact that capitalism is superior to feudalism is completely uncontroversial and undisputed. The dispute is about whether capitalism is is as good as we can get or whether humanity can do better. Okay. Um, Just want to acknowledge, like, I I don't know exactly what happened with the the laws with regard to things like eight-hour workdays or weekends. Um, So maybe the rubber stamp thing, I was speaking loosely there. but I've read, um, and I also wanted to mention, in Capitalism, The Unknown Ideal, this is a book by Ayn Rand, it deals with a lot of the myths surrounding the history of capitalism. 
um, including things like child labor and unions, um, the role of women in the Industrial Revolution. So I would recommend that people check that book out if you want to learn about the, the history of the, the 19th century. Um, I remember, I don't know if I read it in there or, or some other source, but the the progress that was being made on things like eight-hour workdays or, or certain wages, like Henry Ford raised, raised uh, I think he doubled maybe, the, the wages of his workers at a certain point. Those kinds of progress were already underway and later after they were already underway, it was legislated. I don't know if it was by the NLRB, but anyways, my, my point was just that the legislation followed what was already happening thanks to the forces of capitalism. Okay, uh, you said some things about capitalism, feudalism, how capitalism was better than feudalism and no socialists disputed that. I didn't say socialists disputed that. I'm, I'm not sure what, what the point of bringing that up was, but anyways, uh, those are the only notes I had on the last segment, so I'll I'll stop there. Yeah, I mean, the point of bringing it up uh, was that in arguing with the socialist, you made a big point of saying that capitalism, you know, was was better than what it existed before uh, in a way that certainly sounded to me like it suggested that that was somehow relevant to the argument that you and I were having. Uh, if it wasn't relevant to the, the argument that you and I were having, I have no idea why it was uh, why it was being uh, being brought up. It sounds like in that case, you know, it it was. Is, is kind of a non sequitur uh, in this context. Uh, I, I think I would not, uh, I think the last place anybody should look for accurate history is uh, the writings of Ayn Rand, uh, a, uh, one of the most extreme ideologues uh, who's, who's ever lived. And, and so this is who, my economic historian who contributed an essay to her book, who got a PhD at Columbia, I believe, Robert Hessen, I think. Okay. Well, uh, I would imagine that any economic historian uh, who is uh, is contributed to- Of course, in socialists, they have their own histories and they're going to do things. But I don't think you have to go to history books written by socialists uh, to, to get obvious facts like uh, there were tremendous- Obvious points. facts. <laughs> yes, obvious facts. Facts that are undisputed- no, no, any, no, 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 facts that are please. not disputed by anybody except the most extreme fringe of right-wing ideologues on planet Earth. Everybody else agrees that, of course, eight-hour day laws, 12-hour day laws, child labor laws, all of these things were things that people died in struggles to achieve. There were things that were bitterly resisted uh, by uh, by factory owners in uh, in the 19th century as late as uh, as 1914, the uh, the Supreme Court was striking down attempts to uh, to enact uh, to enact child labor laws. I think that the idea that the forces of capitalism uh, did away with all of these things, as opposed to struggles by working people uh, to both you know, to both found labor unions and enforce uh, enforce better conditions that way, and also to exert political pressure to have better laws passed. I I, I think that's completely detached. Uh, from uh, from historical reality, I would also point out the continuing irony of saying that anything good that happens under actually existing capitalism, well, that's due to the forces of capitalism. Anytime you point out the horrors of actually existing capitalism, you know, people who die because their medical GoFundMe's, the alleged are, horrors, are, okay, alleged horrors, sure, okay, right, I guess right. I guess that's never happened. So if the uh, that the alleged horrors of capitalism, you know, I guess it's not true. For example, that Sweden has a you know, significantly higher life expectancy than the United States. It's not true. Uh, that infant mortality is higher in the United States than in, uh, than in uh, comparable Anglophone countries that have uh, that have socialized medicine. I, 
you know, like, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But sure, the alleged horrors of capitalism, no, no. If any of that stuff is acknowledged to be real, it can't possibly be because of capitalism. It must somehow or another be a result of state intervention. Again, this reminds me yeah. of nothing so much as it reminds me of hearing devout Christians saying, yes, all the good things about nature testify to the glory of God, but the bad things, well, you know, those must be a result of, you know, original sin there's, or something. There's a principle. God couldn't have done that. Okay, what's the yeah, principle? Yeah, there's a the principle. The idea is that uh, coercion paralyzes and negates the mind. Now, that goes back to the earlier discussion of what is coercion. And we have disagreements with that, and it rests on disagreements about the moral claim issue. But the the thing that explains it is that when you use force against people, you're stifling the minds. I gave the example of Galileo having to think in compliance with the church. You're stifling them in the mind. Uh, antitrust laws, you um, produce too much, you're, you're penalized for, or you, you charge too much, you can be penalized for that. You charge less than your competitors, you can be penalized for that. You charge the same as your competitors, you're penalized for that, collusion. Um, so no matter what you do, there's no way to interpret it. This is one of the examples Ayn Rand gives is how non-objective antitrust laws are. If you're a businessman, you're just paralyzed. There's nothing you can do legally. Um, so when you use force against people, you paralyze the mind that impedes and stifles production. And that drives down standard of living, uh, makes everything worse. So there's a mechanism to explain why bad things happen when you introduce coercion into a system and why good things happen when you free up free up the system. And I just want to add also on this issue of historical sources. You know, Ben, he's going to claim uh, his facts based on socialist historians and say they're not controversial. And I'll point you to thing, things I read in Capitalism, okay, okay. the Unknown Ideal. But I say, you know, read both sources. I think um, it's good to be widely read, read the opposition as well, and, you know, make up your own minds. But this is another source that I just wanted to bring to people's attention. There's a, re a reason uh, Ayn Rand titled it Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal. Many people don't know about this. The universities are dominated by people with leftist perspectives, and that's all that many people hear. Yeah, I, I, God, I wish that were true. Uh, but in any case, I, I think that the I think that there are numerous non-socialist historians who will uh, tell you uh, everything that I, I just said uh, earlier. I think there are pretty right-wing historians who would acknowledge that there was tremendous opposition to 12-hour day laws, child labor laws, uh, etc. But I, I would also just say, and I know we're out of time, so I'll just I'll just let this be my last point that they have that I don't think a sort of general, vague ideological story about why state intervention would cause bad results counts as a principled reason to believe that everything bad that happens under capitalism uh, is a result of the, the respects in which it's not pure capitalism. That really is an empirical issue, and I need a lot better than that to take that seriously. Okay. Hello? Yep. Uh, yeah, Ben broke up for a second, but I think uh, Oh no. Did, what, did, did you? Uh, what yeah, was I, I think you, I got the. Uh, you you got the got gist. The, okay. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think okay. the mechanism is is legitimate. Uh, I think force does negate and paralyze the mind, and uh, I mean, we could go into that more, I'm sure, but we're out of time here. So, it's right. time for the Q and A, Cass. Yes. Are we ready? Okay. okay. 
All right, gentlemen, thank you guys so much for that spirited discussion. Thank you to everybody in the audience for the questions. We're going to go ahead and get into it. If you guys have any more super chats, they will go to the top of the list. Again, uh, please remember to keep it uh, civil and attack the arguments and not the person. The insults won't be read. Um, and uh, the gentlemen's links are in the description below. So if you're listening via the podcast or on YouTube, don't forget to check them out. And don't forget to smash the like button. Don't forget to subscribe. Don't forget to give James some love for giving us this great platform to discuss these ideas. So with that, let's go ahead and get to the super chats. Okay. Um, extra juicy. Member for two months. Uh, how long, how will the government fund policing and military? I think that's for you, Dr. Ben Curtis. No, that's probably no, for I, me. That's for, that's, for, that's for Dan because I, you know how I think so. So what, what does Dan think? Yeah, so it, it, it's a common objection. Like if we have capitalism and there are no taxes, well, how will we get things like the police and the firefighting oh, okay. and roads? I yeah. produced a video on my YouTube channel, which ex addresses exactly that question. So I'll refer to you to that. But there are various ways of financing the governments. Um, Ayn Rand has an essay called Government Financing in a Free Society. And she uh, mentions various things, some of which have actually been done historically in some places like lotteries. Of course, there will be donations as well. She also talks about um, paying money to enforce contracts. Um, that could be a way of raising money. And also, I should mention that it will be much easier to raise money if the government's functions are scaled back to the uh, the kinds of things I'm saying, just police, military, and courts, that's so minuscule um, compared to what we have today that I think it would be cake, easy as cake to, to fund the government. I've heard some people say that if the government just invested its, its uh, revenue from voluntary means, donations or lotteries or whatever, it could have enough to survive or to do perform all its functions just on the interest uh, that uh, it would get from investing whatever it gets. But also things like roads, those would not be functions of government. Those would be private. I think there would be an incentive. Every, you know, so it's, there's a demand for roads just like there is for, uh, you know, games at sports arenas. No one person is going to pay for, you know, tickets, uh, pay for a Lakers game, you know, but you have tens of thousands of people who all want this thing and they'll chip in, they'll pay for their ticket and collectively, they can make something like this happen. And likewise with the roads, it doesn't have to be toll boosts. There are other things you can do. Tolls maybe is one way, but you could have sell adver advertising space on billboards. That would be another way to fund roads. You could build, factor in the cost of roads to the rents that people have to pay You know, for businesses or homes that are alongside the roads. That's another way you can raise re revenue. So there are different free market ways, um, but also you can, you can check out my video for, for, for that. Interesting. Thank you so much. The next super chat from a long story short for $5 says, Ben, Sweden has more billionaires than the USA per capita. Most of the Scandinavian countries have freer markets than we have here. Okay. Uh, the first claim may be true. The second claim certainly is not and, and definitely doesn't follow from the first claim. So uh, I think that if the first claim is true, that's actually great for me, uh, because because uh, that that should just make nonsense of the claim that having this more expansive economic role for the state that you have in the uh, the Nordic countries makes it impossible to have a thriving economy. But the claim that there's any way in which the Nordics are uh, are you know economically freer, as libertarians understand that, uh, than um, the United States, 
is is just complete like like there's absolutely no basis to that in reality i would strongly recommend what matt brunick has written about this the people's policy project um in terms of um you know the the things that people will bring up are the lack in certain countries of uh of minimum wage laws uh they what they won't bring up are the fact that you have you know vastly more favorable labor laws uh for unions and you have sectoral bargaining that essentially enforces minimum wage is much higher than the American minimum wage, a sector by sector of uh, of the economy. So you have that, you know, it's not just whatever the market will bear. You have the higher wage floor that way. Other than that, the claim that the Nordic countries where, you know, you have vastly larger public sectors, vastly stronger unions, vastly more expansive social services, things like free college, uh, universal health care, et cetera, uh, oftentimes mostly nationalized health care. Uh, that those are somehow more free market than the U.S. is largely based when you actually like dig into the the facts that people bring up uh, to try to support that. Uh, it's largely based on the fact that like starting a business in uh, some of these Nordic countries, you have to fill out fewer forms than you do in the U.S. That's most of what people are talking about. Uh, the actual number of forms in the U.S. is nothing that would be a meaningful barrier uh, in the first place. But even if it were, that's not because of you know the sorts of differences that you know people are arguing about when libertarians and social democrats and socialists argue about you know whether the Nordics are better. That's just because of America's crazy federalism means that oftentimes you have to you know to fill out you know form for the locality, the state, the country, and that you know places like Sweden uh, have much more centralized systems, which means that uh, that you have fewer forms to fill out. But I don't think that's anything that any libertarian or conservative actually advocates getting rid of uh, getting rid of America's federalism for the sake of giving people fewer forms. Gotcha. Thank you so much. Can I add um, a few thoughts on that? Uh, if you make it short and pithy, but Dr. It? Burgess will have to have this last word, so go ahead. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I'll just mention that um, sometimes happiness studies are mentioned in connection with the Nordisk, Nordic countries as evidence that you know they're better places to live, but um, Yaron Brook, who was... Um, you know, another objectivist who uh, he's actually debated been in the past. He's done a, a show uh, debunking, or at least, you know, he, he takes it to de debunk some of these happiness studies. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll just leave it at that for now. Okay. okay. Well, uh, I, I, I find Euron personally likable, but uh, I, I would I'd be very skeptical of any Euron Brook uh, de uh, debunking of that. But also, even if you disregard the happiness uh, studies, I think that factors like, you know, life expectancy or just, just the sort of obvious benefits for human dignity of uh, of not having to, you know, to rely on generosity of family members or private scholarships to go to college, et cetera, are still, um, you know, standard of living. I think there are numerous respects in which those countries are better, even disregarding the happiness studies. Although I do think it's awfully significant that countries where it's sunny like two days a year, you know, and uh, extremely cold uh, are still ones that whomp us uh, in at least self-reported uh, happiness numbers. That that seems pretty telling to me. Gotcha. Thank you so much. Okay, um, this last next super chat is from KWNY Upstate uh, for $5. Robbing someone of their property and giving it to others also robs them of their motivation to work and yet doesn't impart that motivation on others. Well, I think it is really interesting to pair that super chat with the last one, because in the last one, we heard that the Nordic countries that have higher tax rates and vastly more extensive social services produce more billionaires. So which is it, right? You know, does it actually, 
Uh, does having higher tax rates to fund uh, universal social programs that dramatically improve the lives of most people, uh, does that reduce the willingness to, uh, to work or not? And if it does, how do you explain the fact that there are more billionaires in Sweden? And I'll, I'll just add to that. Um, so again, I'll cite Iran. You know, this is kind of like citing uh, right-wing historians versus leftist or socialist historians. You know, listen to both sides and see what you think makes most sense. But um, from what I've heard uh, uh, from my sources, uh, the Nordic countries are actually less regulated no, than I, the U.S. is in in many respects, and you know Ben is going to have his own sources, but I, I say look no, it's it's, it's not a, it's not about sources. I just explained what that meant. Yeah, of course, it's not about sources, right? No, it's, it's not just about, about sources. It's, it's 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 literally about what people mean when they say that. What people mean when they say it's regulated is not that there are fewer labor regulations. It's not there are fewer environmental regulations. Uh, what they mean when they say it's less regulated is that there are fewer steps to start a business and. That is because they lack the kind of federalist system that we have in the United States. There's no other sense uh, in which those countries are less regulated overall. It is interesting, um, but we should move on. Uh, let's go ahead and uh, see. Caleb Maupin for twenty dollars uh, says Anne Rand and fake left. Anne Rand and fake left are both anti-populist. They view humanity as the mob threatening the intellectuals like Leo Strauss. We need a government of action to fight for working families. <sighs> well, as usual, Caleb's descriptions of my politics have nothing to do with ever, anything I've ever said or thought. I don't know why he makes stuff up, but he does. And he's a, um, I think the most charitable interpretation of him is that he's a severely mentally ill person. I hope he gets the help he needs. Gotcha. Uh, once again, from KWNY Upstate for $5, how much of Ben Burgess's money and goods does he currently distribute to those in need? Question mark. <laughs> uh, please don't say he doesn't actually do what he preaches. Well, if what I preached were individual charity as a solution to poverty, then there could be an inconsistency there. Of course, I don't preach that. Uh, libertarians and conservatives preach that. So if they don't do that, they're hypocrites. Uh, but the accusation of hypocrisy makes absolutely no sense when it's leveled against people who do not, in fact, preach that. Gotcha. I don't. I don't see what the hypocrisy is on my side. Well, if if um, your if your solution to people suffering under capitalism is individual charity and you're not giving out individual charity, then yeah, that sounds a whole lot more hypocritical than somebody whose solution is systemic and structural, not doing the thing that they don't advocate. Well, I haven't, I haven't stated how much, if any, I give to charity, but also the reason some people might not give to charity is because their property is already being seized from them in large amounts by the government. And so they, they don't want to give any more. I think they would be much more benevolent towards helping out people who truly need it, which again, I think is a tiny minority of people who literally can't support themselves. Um, but, you know, I think there would be abundant charity for, for that tiny minority if people weren't being, you know, forced to 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 do it already yeah i mean that's a that's a prediction that's based on nothing there's absolutely no reason to take that seriously i know i understand that it would be convenient for your ideology if that were true but i would like to see some actual evidence for that before you know before i started to believe it and even if i did believe it see earlier in the debate i think that there i think that there are there are reasons to prefer 
people being given something as rights of citizenship that cannot be taken away under uh, by a whim. Uh, you have to change the laws. It's very difficult to change the laws. Once social entitlements are in place, uh, it's often electoral suicide to oppose them. So it's vastly more difficult to take away uh, universal social programs. Certainly no individual government official could just do it on a whim. Then it is take away uh, individual charity. And so I think forcing people to rely on individual charity to meet their needs is incredibly, de incredibly demeaning and it uh, dramatically disempowers them. I, I gotcha. think well, you've got it, it backwards. Dr. Norton, Dr. Norton <laughs> it was a question for Dr. Burgess, and we do have to move on. So I do okay. want to let him have the last word on this one. Sorry. Um, this next thing is just a, it is a super, super, uh, I'm so sorry, a super sticker from Noli D for $2. So thank you so much, Noli D, for that. Thank you so much. Uh, the next is from Super k pill for 499 dr burgess keep in mind many people are able to escape their nine to five under capitalism by saving and investing yeah i mean some people are most people aren't uh you know most most you know small businesses uh, you know fail very soon after uh, after being started but i also think that the um that uh if you say that people can escape something right then even if that's even if that's true Right. And of course, it can't be true for everybody. It would be structurally impossible to have a modern, complex economy uh, where everybody was a small business owner. That couldn't work. Right. So, uh, even, you know, so given that, right, the question is is it just to have a social order where most people start out under conditions that it feels appropriate to describe leaving those conditions as escaping them, uh, especially considering? that escape would be structurally impossible for everybody at the same time. Uh, I, I just, maybe I'll just reiterate the general point that I think uh, if you have a, a free system, a capitalist system, the opportunities that people have over time will get better and better. So as I mentioned earlier, maybe instead of an eight hour day, it'll eventually be a, four hour day because we've made so much progress. There'll be so much technological advance. We'll have machines, robots doing uh, what used to be done by human labor that, you know, work will become less necessary. At least certain yeah. kinds of work. Whole, yeah. But, but um, automation never works that way under capitalism. It never could work that way under capitalism because the incentives don't work out right. Okay. Uh, well, I, I mean, I, yeah, I don't agree with that. I had a, yeah, I, I mean the the point. the the point is just that they have a that why would you continue to pay people just as much to work uh, four hours? Obviously, what would be in your interests uh, would be to uh, to either you know make people make people part time or to uh, or to you know lay off half the workforce if it you know or or to have people you know work just as much and produce more as long as you have that separation between labor and ownership. There's absolutely no reason that automation would ever work that way in, in the future, just as it hasn't worked that way in the past. You know, you haven't gotten shorter work days, you know, purely as a matter of of sort of benevolent decisions, uh, you know, by by business owners that they were voluntarily sacrificing their own products for the sake of, of their own profits for the sake of giving the workforce more free time. I, I think. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, I think people would have more opportunities to work less per day if they wanted, thanks to the free market mechanisms. But the, the point I, I forgot a second ago that I just came back to me is um, 
this point about relative versus absolute poverty. So now today, some, you know, poor people, people are so often called poor, have iPhones, they have internet, they have cars, they have TVs. Yeah, they have, I, I think this is this. testament to, you know, the, the progress that we've made. You know, people today who are poor are richer than kings were in the feudal era, you know, 500 years ago. And I, I think we'll just see that uh, maybe poor people in the future will have flying cars. And I think we will see that. Um, but it's it's better to have uh, unequal rich people than equal poverty, equally poor. Well, yeah. I mean, I acknowledged that principle earlier. Obviously, I don't accept that those are the options. I think the I think empirical reality overwhelmingly shows that those aren't the options that uh, that we can have. Uh, that we can have, for example, much stronger labor unions, much more expansive social services. Uh, you know, without uh, without resulting in the more equal distribution of poverty, uh, but with uh, you know with you know good standards of living. Uh, for the majority of the population, I think the I think the history of actually existing uh, social democracy proves that conclusively. I think if you look at worker cooperatives like the Mondragon Federation in Spain, I think you can absolutely have successful, thriving businesses that uh, that don't rely on this division of uh, of labor and capital in the first place. But yes, if the only options were severe inequality or everybody being worse off. Than they would be in a more uh, than um, than you know than uh, than than even the worst off people in the more unequal system in a more equal alternative, then sure, right? You know that that would be a good uh, you know like that. Then, then you know I would have to rethink my views. I mean you know, but of course I don't accept that those are actually the options. I don't think the historical record shows those are the options. Gotcha. Okay, let's move on, guys. Um, Next question is from Super K Pill for four ninety nine. Doctor Burgess, low life expectancy is due to obesity epidemic, not the U.S. healthcare system. Americans love to eat. Yeah, well, it's certainly true that Americans love to eat, but trying to pin uh, the differences in life expectancy, infant mortality, and my favorite uh, mortality amenable to medicine, which is just stats nerd speak for people who die who would have lived if they had medical intervention on time trying to uh, pin all of these discrepancies between the U.S. and Canada, the U.S. and Britain, uh, the U.S. and Sweden, et cetera, uh, on obesity alone uh, is just not plausible. If you actually look at the country-by-country country breakdown rate, uh, it is true that this is, you know, this is definitely one of the areas where the U.S. is worse. But, um, uh, you know, as anybody who has, uh, you know, visited uh, Canada, you know, Canada knows, right, you know, this is a culture that loves its beer and donuts, uh, and uh, the the obesity rate is somewhat lower than the United States, not nearly low enough uh, that 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 explains the difference by itself. I would also point out that there are other lifestyle factors uh, like uh, like smoking and drinking, in which uh, Great Britain, for example, is much less healthy than uh, the United States, and yet they have the higher life expectancy, lower infant mortality, uh, lower uh, rate of mortality available to medicine uh, than the United States has. And uh, you simply cannot explain all of this away uh, just by the single factor of obesity. Gotcha. Thank you so much. And uh, the next question comes from a long story short for $5. Isn't it ironic that these socialist YouTubers like Vosh never bring on their channel real people who lived in the USSR or Eastern Bloc countries? Well, I mean, if... if uh... You know, I, I have my disagreements with the gentleman who's mentioned, but um, I, I've never heard any him anybody 
accuse him of uh, being an advocate of the uh, of the system they had in uh, in the the USSR. Uh, so I think the question, you know, gets down to, um, you know, the same one, you know, as we were raising earlier about what's quote unquote real capitalism uh, or or not, right? I mean, you know, you can insist that anything that was called, you know, socialism, uh, you know, that that whatever its flaws were are the same are the same flaws that would be true of anything else, no matter how radically different uh, that use the same label. Of course, if you're going to say that, then you'd have to say the same thing about capitalism. And all of the flaws of that would uh, would be explained uh, explained by uh, by by that label, you know, by the fact that it's uh, that it's capitalism. I actually think the difference between what Vosh advocates, which everything I've ever seen, right, you know, what he advocates is a kind of market socialism with universal worker cooperatives. Uh, you know, whenever I've heard him describe what he means by socialism, that's always to describe it. That sounds a lot more different than the USSR than pure capitalism would be from uh, the United States, I think even by the admission of libertarians and objectivists who, who will say things like, you know, the 19th century United States is about as close as, you know, as anywhere has got into pure capitalism. Oh, also, um, Vosh isn't here on my channel. Uh, I, routinely, <laughs> I routinely host uh, all sorts of people uh, who want to debate me. Granted, Vosh does too, but uh, I couldn't speak to whether anybody he's hosted uh, is from those particular countries, but you know, I don't know. I mean, you can watch, uh, you know, you can watch my debate on my channel with uh, with Yard Brook, uh, where he goes on and on about his life and you know socialist kibbutzim in uh, in Israel. So, uh, I, I, you know, I certainly don't see how this particular criticism could be applied to me, and frankly, probably couldn't be applied to Vosh either. Whatever my problems with some of the guy's views, I do not think that uh, you know he's he's in the business of. You know, he clearly likes doing debates. If you're from one of those countries and you want to argue with him about about capitalism, I think that he would, you know, my sense of him is that he would probably take it. Although, obviously, I can't speak for him. Gotcha. Dr. Norton, do you want to say anything about that? Uh, I'll just mention that Ayn Rand was from, uh, she was born in Russia and she lived under the communists when they took over. And she has some first-hand experience um, with that system and her first novel we the living is the most autobiographical novel um of hers and it's you can see some parallels between um the soviet system and then what happens in the novel so if you want to get her perspective um on it i would recommend uh take a look at her book her novel we the living gotcha thank you so much all right uh Super chat from Spencer Howe for four ninety nine. I believe this is our last one. Uh, Dan, Econ Dan, economies only exist because governments allow them to. Who would print the money in your perfect capitalist Randian society? Okay, so currency. I, I think it should be private. Uh, in a in a uh, capitalist system, the government should not be able to produce fiat currency as the Fed does and just prints money. I think that's that causes inflation and that's terrible for the economy. It's a, it's a, it's a indirect way of uh, stealing people's wealth to devalue the currency like that. Um, as to historically, I think there's the Canadian and the Scottish banking system, I think was private. This is, I, I haven't, I'm not an economist, but, but I, I've uh, heard a little about this from economists, uh, George Selgin, is a name I would recommend you you check out, and he I think he's shown that uh, in the Scottish and or Canadian system, 
there were basically no uh, runs on the banks, no panics as there were from time to time in the U.S. And of course, the U.S. had a centralized bank. There was the first bank in the United States, the second bank in the United States, and then uh, there were greenbacks later. So there was intervention in with the with free market banking. There wasn't free market banking, free banking in the uh, United States for much, if not all of its history. Other countries that did have, or at least had closer to free market banking, like Canada and Scotland, did much better. And um, I, I guess you know banks issued their own currencies. And I would recommend you you uh, look into the work of George Selgin for more on how um, free market banking uh, would work. So in, in that particular case, I think these other countries, Canada and Scotland, were uh, better than the United States in terms of uh, adhering to free market principles. Gotcha. Um, so those are the last super chats. Um, let's just try to do these in a rapid fire succession uh, from Louis the... You know, I suck at Roman numerals. <laughs> uh, I'm uh, interested to know where people are getting their morality from. Uh, do you guys have a moral epistemic basis? Well, I, in my case, I, I would say, uh, first and foremost, experience. You know, I have my experience of the world, and that informs my beliefs about morality and everything else. I first read Ayn Rand when I was 17, almost 18, uh, many years ago now, um, and what she said cohered with my own experience. I thought it made a lot of sense, and um, you know, I, I was I was uh, just blown away by how clarifying it was. She made explicit a lot of things that I think are implicit in in my own experiences. But you know, she's a professional philosopher outside the academic mainstream. But anyways. What she wrote just made a lot of sense to me based on my own experience of the world and my introspecting. So I would say um, I fundamentally I get it from experience. And then she, I think, articulates very well um, the, the kind of views that I, I find uh, compelling. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I touched on this in, in my opening statement. Uh, I think I, I think it's absolutely impossible to derive morality from uh, from experience of of non moral reality alone. That they have a that um, once you you know what you count as a good outcome or a bad outcome, uh, you know, or uh, you know what you count as a rights violation or not a rights violation, that experience concerned would tell you when one of the other of those things have happened. Uh, but I I think that you know I think that not, that moral values are not ultimately non reducible. Uh, to uh, to any sort of uh, of non moral facts, you know, non moral facts can tell you how to achieve goals that you care about. They can't tell you which goals to care about in the first place. And this is this is a logical leap uh, that neither Ayn Rand nor anybody else has has been able to uh, to perform. She addresses this issue of Hume, David Hume, in her essay, The Objectivist Ethics. So I recommend taking a look at that if you want to uh, see her. Uh, perspective on this issue of how you derive morality from facts. Interesting. Thank you guys so much. We do have a new super chat that came in from Chess119 for $2. Dan, without government, who will defend private property rights? Without governments, I guess that means anarchy. So I'm not an anarchist. Part of the capitalist system is having a government. It's just that its role should be much limited, more limited than it is right now. So but if there weren't a government, I, I think uh, that would be very bad. I think if you just leave leave it up to vigilantes, you know, a war of all against all, people enforcing, 
either themselves or they have some gang that fights rival gangs. Um, I think that would be um, very bad. Uh, Ayn Rand has an essay called The Nature of Government in, in which she addresses this issue of what would happen if you didn't have a government, why you need a government for the purposes of objective law. Physical force is something you want to have controlled objectively because it's a destructive force and you want it to be controlled very precisely. You don't want to you only want to use it in retaliation. You don't want to initiate force. And you, you only want to retaliate uh, proportionally to uh, the crime that was done. You don't want to overdo it. So you want to very uh, carefully control laws so it's as peaceful as possible, which means society will be as um, successful and prosper as much as possible. So, yeah, if, if there weren't if there weren't a government to enforce laws, uh, I guess, you know, private citizens would have to do it. But that's that's not a good, not a good system. Gotcha. Thank you so much. Um, next question from uh, Brad Becker. Why is Ben focusing on rich people? Capitalism is how poor people become wealthy. Well, um, obviously, because I don't accept his premise that they uh, that, uh, that that capitalism generally has that effect on poor people. Capitalism is certainly a system under which some poor people uh, can uh, can become uh, become wealthy. Uh, I, I certainly don't accept that it's a uh, it's a system that has that effect on most poor people. I actually think it's a system uh, that has the opposite effect. It's certainly true that as technology progresses uh, over time, that alone can uh, expand pot. I don't accept uh, that the that you need uh, capitalist property relations in order to have that growth uh, over uh, over time. I also don't accept that wildly unequal distributions of resources in the present are justified by the promise that the floor will be raised in uh, in the future. I, I think that people who are around right now uh, also count. Uh, but I think that uh, I think the capitalism uh, is is a system that uh, that has the uh, has the effect of uh, of making people much poorer than they would be often uh, under uh, under other circumstances. Again, is it better than feudalism? Not a dispute. Is uh, is it the best that we can do? Uh, that uh, that I very much don't accept. I think even the actually existing uh, social democracies, the Nordic countries, and elsewhere, uh, prove that there are uh, ways that we can do things other than totally laissez-faire, unregulated capitalism that are much better for uh, people at the bottom of the uh, the economic ladder. Uh, and I think uh, and I think examples of successful cooperatives. Uh, show us at least a glimmer of possibility of something even better than that. Gotcha. Thank you so much. Um, next question from uh, Pear D. Bear. Does Ben know what Anne Rand's definition of capitalism is? I think we heard it several times in this debate. So unless Dan has dramatically misrepresented it, then yes, I do know. Can you recite it? <laughs> I can recite it. <laughs> Um, I, I didn't give I didn't give the literal definition that. Oh, oh, I mean, okay, I but give, you, yeah. you you certainly described what what yeah. what you would, what you would count as pure capitalism, right? You described a system uh, under which the state only exists uh, for certain extremely minimal libertarian functions, uh, under which you know there's no there's no redistribution, there's <clears> respect <throat> for pretty absolute uh, property rights. You you listed a long list of the kinds of social interventions. That exist under actually existing capitalism that wouldn't exist under capitalism as you and Rand understood it. I mean, I, I think that you can, um, whoever you agree with in the debate. I mean, I, I, I think that Dan would have had to do 
you know, I, I actually think it's, it's a, um, it's an unfair uh, accusation against Dan that he hasn't at least conveyed uh, what Ayn Rand means when she say capitalism. I mean, I think, I think Dan did better than that. Okay. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't take it as an accusation, but uh, just for the questioner or for the audience, um, this is Ayn Rand's exact definition of capitalism. Quote, capitalism is a social system based on the recognition of individual rights, including property rights in which all property is privately owned. Unquote. So she she uses the concept of individual rights in that in that uh, definition, and I was thinking about including that in my opening statements during certain uh, drafts of of uh, working it up. But I I ultimately decided I wanted to focus it differently. I mean, I conveyed the idea of rights, but since it's come up now, I can just say that her idea of rights is that. Um, they can only be infringed by physical force. So if you have a right, the only thing you have a right to is to be free from force. You don't have a right to positive. So what's sometimes called positive rights or positive freedom by uh, people on Ben's side, they'll say you have a right to a job, you have a right to an education, but at whose expense? That's the question Ayn Rand asks in her essay, Man's Rights, also in The Virtue of Selfishness, her book. I recommend checking that out. Um, the kind of po so-called positive rights amount to violating genuine rights. Uh, she says these are inflated rights. Um, just as bad money drives out good money when you inflate the currency, well, these printing press rights are, drive out genuine rights. The only way to have a right to an education or a right to a job or something is to violate someone else's right, genuine right, to not be forced to support that person by giving paying for his education, paying for his health care, paying for his job. So um, that's a little bit of an involved discussion, which I didn't have time to get into in the opening statement. But the key idea for her on rights is that they can only be violated by physical force. And um, that means uh, no coercion. OK, if you coerce someone, you're violating someone's rights. Otherwise, their rights are intact. Yeah. So, of course, uh, it's not controversial that uh, that. Uh, basic rights uh, to uh, to things like uh, healthcare, education, etc., uh, are incompatible uh, with uh, with absolutist property rights. The disagreement is about which ones are genuine. I think that a right to healthcare, a right to education, etc., these are real rights. And I think that uh, I think that the right to keep every single dollar in your bank account, pre every single pre-tax dollar in your bank account is a nonsense uh, pseudo right that I've heard absolutely no reason to take seriously. I would also point out that it's actually not about physical force. That was established earlier in the debate. Uh, that the, that again, the threat of physical force is used to enforce any system of distribution of scarce resources. The actual argument is always about which distribution of scarce resources should be enforced by the, uh, the threat of uh, a physical force, and of course, um, what, what's really revealing is that you know the libertarian, any objectivist, in cases like the television example from earlier, would say, "Oh no, that doesn't count as initiation of force," because even though there was no actual physical force earlier, there was still an action that violated property rights. So the real action is always going to be on the question of what gives somebody a right to a uh, to a given piece of property. And that's something uh, that I think libertarians have, have struggled a lot to say anything plausible about because you always end up in this bind where uh, if you 
are you just describing a fantasy scenario whereby things played out exactly that way in some alternate dimension? People would have a right uh, to some piece of property, or do you want to defend actual property rights as they exist in the real world, which uh, very often uh, come after a series of economic transaction, which would be unrecognizable in a world without tons of state interventions of, uh, of kinds that objectivists and other kinds of libertarians disapprove of. Gotcha. I think that's a good stopping point there since Dr. Norton did lead us off. Um, I think we should go ahead and wrap it up there. Uh, we are out of time for the Q&A. Ladies and gentlemen, it has been quite a pleasure to host this debate. I want to thank our debaters. You guys are the lifeblood of the show. I want to thank you guys so much for having such a spirited conversation. Uh, it has been a pleasure. I also want to thank our moderators in the chat for doing such a great job of keeping the discussion civil. Uh, special shout out to Sideshow Nav and whoever else was helping with editing the uh, question document and helping me to wrangle up all these questions for the Q&A. You guys are uh, the best. I really appreciate your help. I want to thank James and uh, the audience for making Modern Day Debate what it is. And I want to also remind everybody to like, share, and subscribe to the video. We have many more debates coming up again tomorrow night. T-Jump will be debating with uh, Alex Stein on whether or not the moon landing was faked. So you guys do want to check that out. Uh, so again, thank everybody for coming out. Have a great night. And remember to keep sifting out the reasonable from the unreasonable. You guys all have a great night. Thanks. Yeah.